Much like Moses before him and Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith that would come, Isaiah left a final testimony that would both sum up and add to his prophetic legacy. The final chapters of Isaiah are a powerful testimony of the salvation of God and a dramatic witness of the new Jerusalem that would come. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is number 40, Enlarge the Place of Thy Tent. And the chapters that we are assigned are uh, chapters 54 through 56 of Isaiah and then 63 through 65. In typical fashion, I'm going to take the entire 54 through 66, the entire last section of Isaiah. And so if you don't want to cover all those, you're welcome to skip through as we go. But there are certain chapters in here that we cannot miss. And for those who are new, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Ask your questions about lessons past or future, or even present, although the present will be the past by the time I get it. And today I have, I'm so excited to talk about the final chapters of Isaiah. I, I hope that if, well, I can relate my own experience, and I hope that a lot of you share it, but I noticed that as I was preparing and reading these chapters, it was a lot easier for me to understand exactly what Isaiah was talking about on the first reading. And in fact, I didn't need as much recourse to another translation as I as I have in previous lessons. I was able to, most of this I was able to read for the first time right in the King James translation and understand exactly what Isaiah was going for, at least uh, what I think and, and feel like I had a pretty good handle on what was happening. And uh, be, and I also felt like I was more quickly able to dive into what the hidden meanings might be. So I guess the point is practice makes perfect. If you think Isaiah is impossible to understand, I can tell you that I'm, uh, I've increased probably by double my amount, my ability to understand Isaiah just over the past six weeks. And so therefore, um, you can do it too. And I hope you did. Uh, We'll begin, so our assignment is chapter 54. We'll begin by going back over the last part of last week's lesson, which was Isaiah 53. If you remember, we talked about how this was the culmination of Abinadi's address before the wicked priests of King Noah, and he used Isaiah chapter 53 as a powerful testimony of Christ, which we know that it is. So let's go, let's go back over what exactly was happening right before the final chapters of Isaiah. And, and the final chapters of Isaiah are considered by many scholars to be 56 through 66. So we'll talk briefly about 54 and 55, but then we'll spend most of our time 56 through the end. And those are 11 chapters that are sort of unified in theme and um, not, not really a whole lot of present day stuff going on for Isaiah mostly prophecies about the future, and therefore um, not too many layers, prophetic layering happening in the meanings, or at least um, it's profitable to read this without having to worry about 
finding hidden meanings in every behind every nook and cranny. It's it's simple to read just straightforwardly because he's talking about days to come. Um, so back to chapter 53. Now, this is where the suffering servant is discussed. You remember that um, Christ is bruised for our iniquities, or the servant is bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. So I want to draw your attention to just one thing. If we start in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 53, we can see that the suffering servant was killed. It says he was cut off out of the land of the living, and he was stricken. So he was, he was executed. And then we see that he made his grave with, some, with the wicked. So the suffering servant definitely died and is described as being killed. And then in the um, following verses, it, it's described that he will see his seed, his days will be prolonged, and God will divide him a portion with the great. So he'll, he'll receive his reward. So it doesn't explicitly say that he'll be brought back from death to a physical body. But what it does say is, even though he's dead, he receives all of the rewards of his faithfulness. So that's kind of the context of what the servant is going through. And as we discussed last week, the, the people of Israel, the ancient people of Israel, they saw themselves as this suffering servant. And one fulfillment of this prophecy was that they would be carried away into exile and that the punishments that they would undergo would one day be visited upon those who were 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 tormenting them and so they would see that in that day as as if Israel had been suffering for those around them now uh, a more apt interpretation is that is obviously that it is Christ's atonement and Christ is suffering for the sins of others it's more obvious to us because we believe in Jesus Christ as the savior but the point for me was that he will, by his death, but with his stripes we are healed, with his transgressions are we made pure. And I wanted to draw attention to that because if you remember when we discussed the, six, the first uh, lesson of Isaiah, the sixth chapter, where Isaiah gets his prophetic calling and he's summoned to the temple and he has this vision of Christ, we, dis- we talked about the contrast between impurity and holiness and Isaiah is all of a sudden he realizes he's in the temple and the first thought is, I'm going to die because I'm not pure. He knows that ritually and perhaps even morally, he's not pure. And nobody could be. Nobody could feel like they were pure and worthy in that moment. But then God does something that was new. Instead of saying your impurity is going to infect those around you, which is how under the law of Moses this kind of thing worked, God takes his purity and spreads it to Isaiah and says, because of my holiness, you are made pure. And then in chapter 53, God is saying, my servant will have that same power. He's going to be able to, so normally you Jews, you go through the world and you have to worry about whether you're ritually pure or impure. You can't interact with symbols of death. You can't touch a dead body or be near blood or other fluids. Anything that resembles death can render you impure. And if you're impure, then you make those around you impure. You can't come in the temple. Now what God's saying is there are those whose holiness is so great that they will take that holiness and spread it to you. They can instantly cure your ritual and moral impurity. So God's servant in chapter 53 is described as such a person. And also I want to draw attention to the idea of seed. 
So in in Mosiah, when we talked about Abinadi discussing Christ, he w- he said that the seed of Christ would be all the prophets, anyone who would testify of him. Are they not his seed? Abinadi asked. And so that was one of the rewards of the servant, was, would be that he would see his seed. And you can think of, the word seed means offspring, and so you can think of this as a metaphor, as a a way of saying spiritual offspring. He'll see everyone who benefited from his testimony and his sacrifice. He will see them. He will see all the wonderful influences that he's had over human history and human beings from his time before and after. That's part of the reward of this suffering servant is to see his seed. Well, that idea continues in chapter 54. So the barren is what you might think of as referring to Israel. So as we discussed, When Isaiah wrote these chapters down the first time, there were no chapter breaks. There are natural breaks and thematic breaks, and sometimes those do correspond with what were later inserted as chapter breaks. But sometimes, when we go from one chapter to the next, it was just Isaiah continuing to write, and somebody later on put a break there. And if we see this as a continuation of chapter 53, we are talking about the suffering servant, he will see his seed, and then immediately we're talking about rejoicing. Isaiah is encouraging the barren to rejoice. And there are a couple of classes of people in Israel who are viewed as second-class citizens or even lower. And one of those was the foreigner, somebody who hadn't accepted Yahweh, who was not worshiping what we know today as Judaism. They were seen as someone who's not fully part of our nation. And secondly, anyone who is barren. So if you could not bear children, you could not have any progeny. What you did not have was a name. Your house would end with you. So the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, included everyone in in Israel. And the fact that he had so many offspring meant that he had glory with everyone that came from his lineage. And if you had no lineage, you had no name. And if you were a foreigner, you had no place. So these are two words that are discussed in this chapter and immediately where Isaiah is encouraging these these two types of people to rejoice the foreigner and the eunuch somebody who's been um, perhaps even forcibly sterilized or castrated this happened under Babylonian and Assyrian captivity that they would often mistreat their captives the Jewish captives in this way and they were obviously <laughs> destroyed personally they felt heartbroken and that they that they now could have no progeny. And what Isaiah is saying is even the people who are childless, even the people who have no place within Israel are foreigners, they should rejoice because the those people are going to have more, they're going to be treated better than sons and daughters. If you read these first few verses, they're going to have more children than the married wife. They're going to have more progeny. They're going to have more reason to rejoice than sons and daughters of the covenant. So over the next few chapters, what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to point out the difference between what the Jews think is important and what God thinks is important. Here's a, here's a huge example, the contrast between the stranger and the eunuch and the unrighteous Israelite. And again, what Isaiah is saying is what matters is what's inside. In the past, we've seen other prophets talk about your new moons and your Sabbaths and all of your religious observations, they're, they're offensive to me, God says. God tells the, 
the Israelites, I don't, I don't enjoy any of your religious devotions because I can see what's underneath. And this is Isaiah doing the same thing. He's saying, the, the stranger and the eunuch, they've been outcasts among you. They're, they're people who are despised. And they are going to be more blessed than everyone else if their heart is for me. Incidentally, the argument can be made that everything we're about to read and everything we're going to study today is all poetry. So from chapter 54 through the end of Isaiah, it, you might notice that it's a lot of poetic language. And the definition of Hebrew poetry is not perfectly, there's not a, there's not a bright line between poetry and prose. So it's a question of judgment and interpretation as to whether something is poetry sometimes. And most people think that just about everything we're about to read and study is poetry, meaning Isaiah would have taken extra time and extra care to phrase his words carefully, to place them just so, to choose exactly the right word. And we'll see, we'll, we'll see why. We'll see several examples. But this whole chapter is talking about how a wife who is, has been put away or has been widowed, somebody who's through unforeseen circumstances, entered one of these second classes, some, somebody who's less than in the nation of Israel, and how they're going to rejoice. It's a perfect symbol of how Israel would have felt in exile among the Babylonians. So in verse 7 of chapter 54, you see, For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid thy, my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. This is one of the main reasons, I think, why the King James Version is so important because it's just such beautiful language. For this, in verse 9, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah should more go over the earth, should no more go over the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. So he's saying, I made a covenant that I would never punish people again the way I did once. And I'm doing the same thing now. So as powerful as that covenant is, that's how powerful this covenant is. It's very bold. If Isaiah were not a prophet, it would be a very bold declaration. And it would be very offensive to people who heard it and thought it might not be true. And that's why Isaiah is so powerful because this is his, his entire book is filled with this exact kind of bold declaration that even God is saying, just like Noah will never, just like the, the tribulations of Noah will never return. So your tribulations will never return. This will never happen again. And that's the theme of chapter 54. It, it's beautiful enough that it bears, I wish we could read the entire thing. I could just read it to you, but we'll skip the rest of it. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's wonderful. So in verse 55, in chapter 55, is where Jehovah says, or Yahweh says to the, to the Israelites, this covenant that I made with David where I promised a Messiah, I promised this king who would rule over you and bring back the days of my glory under David, under Solomon, uh, this I'm renewing this covenant. This is Isaiah hundreds of years later and 150 years before the entire nation is conquered, saying God is going to bring back this this covenant of uh, free people, you all being a free people and enjoying both spiritual and temporal blessings that have never been seen before. So that that is when... When we talk about how how could the Jews have missed Jesus Christ being a humble Messiah instead of a glorious one, of course, it's a very natural mistake because it's very explicit in Isaiah and other places that the, the Davidic covenant was one of earthly rule. 
And so it was an it, it was only the people who were very spiritually in tune who did not miss that, who were able to see that even though Christ came as a humble savior, that he was the Messiah. Otherwise, they were thinking, well, it's very scripturally based that I would not accept this, so therefore I'm not going to do it. And we'll talk a little bit about the difference between the prophets as they are in the scriptures and the prophets as they are when they're living and right in front of us in a few chapters. But here we are in chapter 55, and in verse 3, this is where the, the covenant is renewed. Incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And if you look at this, in, at BibleHub.com, if you look at the whole chapter, it will show you five. There's one particular page where each chapter can be shown with five translations right next to each other, and you scroll down verse by verse, and you can see it. And in the other translations, it's 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 very clear that what the sure mercies of David means is the Davidic covenant, the promises made to David. So we'll continue, and this is the entire theme of the chapter, is that God is going to smile upon you, he's going to be with you. And in chapter, or in uh, verse 10, for as the, this is a beautiful metaphor, for as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So just like rain is does not fall down and then immediately dry up and go back to heaven, it falls down and waters the earth. God is saying, my word is just like that. I'm not going to send it uselessly, but it's going to have all of the effects that I plan for it to have, and I accomplish my work. And in fact, in verse 9, this is uh, a a very well-known verse. So right before God says that, he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I know what I'm doing, is what God is saying. So that's chapter 55. God is preparing us, and Isaiah is preparing us, to hear this final declaration. Now, one thing I wanted to mention about 55, we've talked about chiasmus in the past. So if if, if you haven't been with us for any of those lessons, very briefly, chiasmus is a, first of all, parallelism is a Hebrew method. It's a, it's a rhetorical method where important ideas are repeated. And chiasmus is simply parallelism where the repetitions happen in, in a certain order. So if I want to repeat, if I have a, a main idea, that will be first, it will be stated first and then last. And then the second idea will be stated second and second to last. And finally, there will be something that's stated in the middle. And then the repetitions begin, and they come in reverse order from their original order. So that is what a chiasmus is, and it's named after the Greek letter chi, which is an X, because if you were to indent these statements as they go, then you would have what looks like the left side of an X. Well... Chiasmus is a, is a well-known rhetorical device in the, in the scriptures and especially in Isaiah, but usually it happens within a few verses or even a, uh, a single verse. And it's kind of easy to spot when it's in one or two verses. You can say, well, those ideas were repeated. But occasionally, and we, and we, we drew attention to this with Elijah and Elisha when they passed over Jordan. Um, if you want to go back and, and listen to the lesson about 
uh, Elisha taking up the mantle of Elijah. That was that was one example. And also when David refused, the two times when David refused to take the life of Saul, those were two examples of possible chiasmi, which is the plural, and I never get to use that word, so I'm going to use it very self-consciously. Uh, there were two chiasmi that took place over multiple chapters. And here in Isaiah, we have what is perhaps the largest, and it's hard to say whether this theory is true or not, but I found a couple of different scholars who assert that chapters 56 through 66 of Isaiah is one big chiasmus. It's one big poetic structure. It's a series of poems where the first part of chapter 66 mirrors the last part of chapter, or 56 mirrors the last part of 66, and then there's this nested structure as we go in. And I tried to identify it. The truth is uh, there are a ton of repeated ideas. And to say exactly where one begins and the next one ends, it's hard to, it was hard for me to identify and say exactly whether that was true or not. But what they all seem to agree on was that these ideas are repeated. So uh, let me say what they disagree on. They, they disagreed on exactly where each of these ideas or the parts of the chiasmus began and ended, except for the center part. They all agreed that chapters 60, 61 and 62 were the center. And this is where the, the servant, God's servant that we've discussed before, announces God's kingdom and, and gives the promise of hope for the new Jerusalem and the, the return of the exiles, so the glorious hope. And again, the, the, the repetition of this idea that we've, we've discussed last week in, in detail about the good news, the, the good messenger. Uh, that comes up again in chapter 60 and 61. So the center part of it, that what Isaiah is doing, what he seems to be doing, what a lot of scholars believe he was doing, was trying to draw attention by, by building a chiasmus that large. He was, drawing, he was trying to force our attention onto these chapters right in the middle. So we'll discuss, we'll discuss these sort of in that order. And uh, the first part is chapter 56 where... I mentioned these two classes of people. This is where we see it most explicitly stated. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. He's saying it doesn't matter whether you're... uh, What matters is not your status within Israel, but keeping my statutes and my judgments. In in verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me, from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord. Now, this is an example of a real short chiasmus, if you can see. First, first Isaiah mentions the son of the eunuch, or the son of the stranger, then the eunuch. Then he mentions the eunuch and the son of the stranger, reverse order. So that's a small example of what a chiasmus is. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them I will give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So uh, you, you'll notice that that's exactly what eunuchs are missing, is a name. Their family is cut off, and he's saying, I will give them a place and a name. And this is a place is what the, the sons of the strangers don't have. I want to talk a little bit about that phrase, a place and a name. In Hebrew, it's Yad Vashem, and the word for place, the the word Yad, which is translated here as place, is translated elsewhere uh, 
it's translated four times as place in the Old Testament, in, in the King James Version, but it's translated hundreds of times as hand. So this is a really interesting uh, idea that God is going to, and hand in the scriptures means power. It, so a place, if you think about what, what place would mean to the Hebrews, I'll give you a, an example from modern times. In World War II, in the time leading up to World War II, the Jews began to be mistreated and persecuted in Hitler's Germany and in the areas that he conquered. And so a lot of Jews tried to get out, and they, they succeeded in escaping. And then oftentimes what happened is they found there was nowhere they could go. Even This happened even in America. Jews, refugee Jews, would make their way to America, and the countries where they were fleeing to they would say, we don't have any room for you here. You're German citizens or you're Austrian citizens, and you can't come. You can't stay. And they'd send them back, and then they... This was a big part of the guilt that the Allies felt was we didn't quite take it seriously enough what was happening to the Jews in the Nazi-held territories. And so they didn't have a place. And that hunger for a place was so strong that it led, and I, I believe the 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 shock at what had happened was so strong that that is why so many countries after World War II were supportive of the Jews' desire to found a, a Jewish state in Israel. And the, But the UN did not accept the state of Israel until after World War II. And that's when Jews had a place. So they had somewhere that they could go that they knew would never reject them. This, this is not a new idea, that, although it was a new fulfillment of the idea, the same idea was what they would have felt anciently. Do you have a place where you can go? The Jews were in exile, so they didn't have, they couldn't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where their heart was. It's where the temple was. It's where they believed that God would, as, as it says earlier on in this chapter, where you could come and buy, buy without price, buy honey and milk without money and without price. You could have the blessings of God just by living there, just by being there and being righteous. And that's what they, that's what they hungered for was a place. So the sons of the strangers want a place, and the eunuchs want a name. Uh, incidentally, the the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, it, the name of it is Yad Vashem, which means a place and a name, but it also means a hand and a name, or the power, the power to resist your enemies, the power to defend yourself, the power to accomplish God's will and help God accomplish His own will on the earth. That's what hand means. So th- this idea of Yad Vashem. It comes from this, this verse, uh, verse 5 in chapter 56, a very famous verse, a very famous phrase. So, uh, and then the, the chiasmus continues, also the sons of the stranger. So first Isaiah mentioned the stranger, then the eunuch, then the eunuch, and now he's mentioning the stranger. Here's your reward. The sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Notice the Notice the emphasis on the Sabbath. It's the same emphasis we've had in the last few years in the modern church. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for the people. So, you'll notice in verse 7 that God is promising temple blessings. There's no other way to interpret this. I will bring them to my holy mountain... Their burnt offerings shall be accepted on mine altar, and my house is a house of prayer for all the people. 
Well, what did the sons of strangers have to do? If, you, if you've ever studied the temple, the time of Solomon, all the way through the time of Jesus and after, there, were, there was what outside where the, the nations of the world could go, what, what was called the court of the Gentiles. And if you were visiting, it's kind of like the visitor center in a modern temple. You needed a temple recommend to go any farther. You needed to be a Hebrew. So uh, what he's saying, what God is saying here, what Isaiah is promising is that there will be no court of the Gentiles. If you're a stranger and you worship the Lord and you keep the Sabbaths, you have made part of your heart. You've taken into your heart the important rules of God's conduct that he has required of man. Then you will receive all the blessings of the temple that have hitherto been reserved for Israelites. So Israel took great pride in being this kingdom of priests and a holy nation, the chosen people of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham. They've taken great pride in this to the point where if, if someone did not have that blessed lineage, then they were excluded and the Israelites felt that they were better than others. And in fact, the phrase holier than thou comes from these chapters that we're studying. Uh, you can look, you can search for it. I'll leave that as an exercise for you, but that, this is where that phrase comes from. So we, we use that phrase a lot. Oh, you're so ho- holier than thou. That actual phrase is used here in Isaiah. And the, what God is promising is that doesn't really exist. You're not any holier than, holier than anyone else. In fact, you might be less holy because the strangers are going to be promised a place in the temple. So um, I wanted to draw attention to Yad Vashem one more time because uh, Avraham Gileadi, who whom I've mentioned a few times as being a con- convert to the restored church of Jesus Christ from Judaism, he made his own translation of Isaiah and has made a, his life's work out of studying the book of Isaiah. And the way he translates this is a hand clasp and a name. We'll talk a little bit about new names. God gives new names to all different kinds of people here in Isaiah. And then what it's so interesting that right here, God is saying, I'm going to give you a hand clasp and a name, and then I'm going to give you all the blessings of the temple. Uh, and if and if you've been to the temple, you'll know a little bit more about how that works, but this is, is describing what temple worship looks like. So God is saying, if you're, if you're faithful, then when the time comes, you'll receive every blessing that anybody, it's possible for anyone to receive, whatever your lineage, whatever your past, whatever your background. In other words, there are no blessed people and uh, people that are outside of God's view. There are only the people who are willing to listen to his voice and the people who are not. Now, if that's the beginning of Isaiah's final chapters, what, what happens in the middle? How does, it, how does it continue? Because that's a pretty dramatic beginning, I think, and it's, and it's very powerful. So on to chapter 57. God t- describes that when you're, uh, if you die in righteousness, right, right at the start, he says, if you die in righteousness, it's not, there's nothing to be sad about. He's consoling those who have seen loved ones die or who are looking with shock or with fear on their own death. He's saying, if you die in righteousness, you go into your, immediately into your rest. And then nobody can take that away. So briefly, uh, if you want to go back and listen to the episode, or you can watch it on YouTube, the episode we did on the six antecedents of Isaiah, what I talk about in that episode is the idea that anything Isaiah says might have more than one meaning, might have more than one fulfillment. 
through a technique known as prophetic layering. So Isaiah is saying one thing, and it might be perfectly valid to interpret it on a surface level. Isaiah goes to the king and talks to him about the invading Assyrians, for example. But it also might be just as valid to have another fulfillment. And I discussed the six possible fulfillments of each thing Isaiah might say. And not all of them apply in every case. But what's interesting here in these final chapters is that we see Isaiah now jump from one to the other. And one dramatic thing that he does is he jumps from one time frame to another. So you can see him here in chapter 56 and 57 start to talk about how the wicked Israelites of today will be destroyed. They will receive judgment, which for Isaiah would have been the present. And then he talks about how the Israelites need to be freed from judgment, which is a jump forward in perspective of 150 years. And Isaiah is talking about the the Jews in Babylonian captivity and possibly even those Jews that have been carried away captive in his own day into Assyria. But he's talking 150 years of the future as if it's the present. And then he jumps back to the present. And then he jumps to the distant future of the new Jerusalem. And he talks about it as if it's the present. This is, so you can, you can watch this happening. And in other words, the first antecedent that we discussed, the, the surface meaning of whatever Isaiah is saying, that surface meaning actually changes again and again during these chapters. And that's why so many people have found these chapters to be chiasmic is because these, these jumps in time frame are clearly identifiable and they have their correspondence later in Isaiah. Very fascinating that he's, that he's doing this. So he's, he's saying uh, very soon, you know, which uh, is, could only be very soon from God's perspective, but very soon you'll be living in a place where there is no death and the lion and the lamb, as we, as we learn in uh, Isaiah 65, they'll the, the lie down together and the, these carnivorous predators are going to eat grass. And the snakes, will, instead of eating animals, they'll eat dust. And so there will be just peace, even among, not only among people, but even among wild animals. There will be peace in the whole world. And nobody will be hurt. There will be no such thing as a baby that dies only days old. They will all live until they're 100 years and more. The, that's the promise of the New Jerusalem. He says it's coming very soon. And, and then he says, you know, we're going to be led out of captivity and out of exile. So there are more than one f- fulfillment to these, these deliverances that Isaiah promises. And one is that they are led out of captivity and they do return to Jerusalem, but it's not the new Jerusalem as we know it today. But the point is, in order to call for repentance, Isaiah has to jump back and forth because he lives in a time of sin. He lives in a time when Israel needs to change, when they're inviting upon themselves their own exile, their own conquering, their own chastening by the surrounding armies of the Babylonians. And he's so he's calling them to repentance. And then in order to make the promises, he has to jump forward in time to the future. Isaiah must have had multiple visions. He must have had the vision and the the sight and the smells and the memories of the new Jerusalem constantly before him because he can't stop talking about it. It was so glorious to him that he couldn't go more than a few verses of talking about sin and please repent before he began to, and and maybe this happened later in his life because as we get later in the book of Isaiah, it becomes more and more prevalent. He can only go a few verses without then jumping forward in time and talking about how Wonderful it's going to be when there are no strangers and foreigners and eunuchs, but there are only people who believe in God and who don't. And you choose exactly what your reward is going to be. 
Now, if you remember our lesson on the prophet Hosea, he made an entire book out of this metaphor that God was a husband and Israel was a cheating wife. And here it is again. Uh, Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. So whether Isaiah got the idea from Hosea, they came up with it independently. Uh, Isaiah expands upon this theme of your bed. He keeps talking about bed in this in this uh, chapter, which is you have it's a it's a metaphor for adultery equals worshiping another god, and so he keeps saying everywhere you you know you sleep here you sleep under every green tree which the groves of trees were commonly altars to uh, Astarte and you you give your children to the king and this is an interesting verse in verse nine of chapter fifty seven we see uh, thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. This is one example where you just cannot figure out what this verse means without another translation. Well, the word for king in Hebrew is melech. And the if you remember, we've talked about the different gods of ancient that surrounded ancient Israel. One of them was Moloch. Well, you've also may, may remember that in Hebrew... Vowels were not uh, very common. In fact, the vowel sounds being written as diacritical marks, that is uh, an artifact of modern he- more modern Hebrew. So in Isaiah's time, Melech and Moloch could easily be mistaken for each other or even the same word. So when he says the king, well, that went us to the king with ointment. Now, not only was this um, the same word, but it was it was known to be the same word. And so... Isaiah's making a pun here. He's saying you went to Melech and you went to the king at the same time. So it's not a mistranslation. It's more the fact that he can't translate, the translators could not translate both. So what Isaiah is, he's making a little joke. He's making a pun. He's, he's using a double meaning. He's saying you went to the king with ointment. So you, you, you dressed yourself up. You went in under the king, or in other words, you went to worship Moloch. And you sent your, your messengers. And this is also can be translated as envoys or ambassadors. So if you were a nation, your nation of Israel, you sent your ambassadors unto the king, you sent your people to worship Molech. So it's a powerful way of saying the same thing twice. He's saying the the entire nation has gone away to this foreign king or the entire my entire spiritual people has gone away to this to this foreign god, this pagan god. And Molech, if you remember, was the god where uh, worshipers would burn their children in sacrifice. So the most terrible of practices were the were done by the people who worship Moloch. And that's why he says you did deba- you did debase yourself even unto hell. An interesting um, just artifact of translation there is that there's no way there's no way we can get all of the meanings when we translate from one language to another, especially when it has to do with puns and double meanings. And in English, a pun is sort of a low form of comedy people groan. It gets a groan right? It's called a dad joke. But in Hebrew, it's a very high form of wordplay. They consider it very intellectual and um, they looked on it with admiration. So this was uh, another example of Isaiah's poetry, his poetic language. So God is talking about how you care so much about what other gods think. You keep going after all these other gods. Look at all the different ways that you're cheating on me, but I'm going to forgive you. And if you remember what we talked about with Hosea was that this, this language of adultery is chosen deliberately to evoke an emotional response because anyone would have an emotional response about hearing about adultery. They would say, oh, 
you know, why would you forgive her? Why would you forgive a, an unfaithful wife? The law of Moses calls for adulterers to be killed, to be executed by stoning. It's a very vicious and brutal response to a terrible act. So once they've had this emotional response, then the, the answer is, well, yeah, it's you. It's you doing it. That's how I feel about you worshiping other gods because I've, I've done all this work for you. I've prepared this salvation for you. And what are you doing? You're committing the equivalent of adultery. There's no peace, God, or Isaiah and God both end this chapter by saying there's no peace to the wicked. So the, the beginning of the chapter is the righteous people, they die and they have the peace. They have peace. They're, they have a blessed death. And at the very end, it says there is no peace to the wicked. So this is a contrast between what happens to the righteous, what happens to the wicked. And they both receive, they both end up in death. And yet, as we learned in chapter 53, death is not the end. You can receive your reward after death. And it, it, you may have noticed, uh, I can point out to you a couple of places where it starts to happen. The word servant is now become plural. So servants are uh, being mentioned as not just one person, not just the suffering servant. And so what God is saying is that this servant, this Messiah, this Davidic king, he's going to start having followers. This is the way I interpret it. He's, go, he's going to start having people who believe in him, and these are my servants, the people who are listening to all these admonitions that Isaiah is making. Repent, change, and you'll be my servants. And my servants in the, in the day of the new Jerusalem, they will be accomplishing this and this work, this and this part of my work. He starts describing what those servants will be capable of. And the character of the servant, the singular servant, fades away, and now it's the job of the servants to get the work done. Isn't that fascinating that here we are in the latter days and the prophets are saying we've got to prepare the work that we're engaged in is to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what Isaiah is saying is the the servant has done his work and now it's the job of the servants to step in and prepare the world to receive the new Jerusalem. So Isaiah is current. I mean, he you can read so much of what he says and have it and apply it right now today to be echoing exactly what modern prophets are saying. Now, chapter 58 is, it, it's almost a tragedy or a, a travesty that this chapter is skipped because in our, in our lesson plan, because this is the chapter where God talks about the fast. So God is making, a, or and God and Isaiah, they're making a contrast here between the way that the Jews fast and the way that they should fast. And it has so much to do with not only fasting, but prayer and Sabbath worship and any kind of worship. So the contrast is drawn between a hypocritical form of holier than thou and the kind of worship that happens only inside. And Jesus Christ made reference to this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in, this is Matthew chapter 6, and this, it happens... between verses 16 and 18, he says, if you, after he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he said, if you, uh, if you fast, don't fast as these people fast where they go out in the street and they make it obvious that they're suffering and they dress themselves in sackcloth and ashes and, and say, woe is me, but don't let anyone know you're fasting. Fast privately and God seest, seest these things, seeth these things privately, but he'll reward you openly. Well, that, I, 
Jesus Christ was building on an idea that was very familiar to his listeners because they would have read this chapter 58 of Isaiah. So you, you're all familiar with the verse where it says, is, not, is it not the fast that I have chosen, in verse 6, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? So in other words, it's, it's the fast that I've chosen to do good works. But before that, Isaiah asks him a bunch of questions, or, or he says, Thus saith the Lord, is this the fast that I've chosen to do all these terrible things that you do? So, um, is it such a fast, in verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen? Remember these, these rhetorical questions where there isn't a clear answer. Uh, it's an implication that the answers know that no such thing exists. Is it such a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? In other words, you make yourself miserable and you think that's what I want. So fasting, obviously, we're not as happy as we are when we're eating. It has a definite part of it where we, uh, we make ourselves slightly miserable, but he's saying this is not the point. The point is not that you feel worse. The point is to feel better. You use, you use your fasting time to break the bonds of others, to break spiritual bonds. Verse 7, Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? In other words, to, to not estrange yourself from your family, to be close to family. So fasting is an opportunity Isaiah's teaching here for us to know what it's like to be hungry, to understand what the poor are going through, and then to act on that feeling, and to know what it feels like to be starved of affection, with, with for a family member to be starved of our company, and to act on that feeling. So it's not meant for us to indulge in the feelings of privation, but for that privation to give us empathy such a powerful teaching from Isaiah about fasting. And it ta- so it's all about the Sabbath day and what we should do. The Lord shall guide thee continually, in verse 11, and satisfy thy soul in draught and make fat thy bones. So here we are, we're, we're not eating or drinking, and yet God is satisfying our soul. Again, a contrast between what's inside and what's outside. That contrast happens over and over again between chapters 56 and 66. Uh, And again, I wish I could spend more time on chapter 58, but we'll move on. So in chapter 59, this is a chapter where you see parallelism after parallelism. So you want to know what Hebrew poetry looks like. This is a perfect example. Before, you'll see uh, an idea stated, and then you'll see it stated again with slightly different words. And this was, if you think about um, what, what a modern equivalent might be, and I, and I know this may, this might sound a little sacrilegious, but it's not. A modern equivalent might be a rap battle. So you have a you have two people who are making up raps about each other. You know, in, in our day, we have uh, rappers who go head to head against each other who see to see who can come up with the greatest insults. But also, not only always it is is it insults, but who can do a freestyle rap. And the way that they do it is one of the techniques used by these improvisational rappers is they have rhymes that they already have memorized. So, uh, you know, I, I have a great gift for rhyme. Yes, yes, some of the time. You may have heard that from the Princess Bride. So rhyme and time. You have these rhymes that are stored in your head and you can go around and make up a rap because all you have to do is fit the ideas that you're already looking at into a, into a line of, 
verse that ends with one of those words. And then you have a ready-made rap. And everybody thinks it's brilliant, but you've already memorized the rhymes. This is a well-known technique for improvisational rappers. Well, in ancient Hebrew, we see a ton of these these words that are repeated, we see them used over and over again, like um, my heart and my soul. My, my heart yearneth after the Lord, my soul hungers for the God of Israel. So in the first instance, the, the desires of the person are expressed as being my heart, and then the second, it's soul. And this is just like a rhyme. The heart and the soul are, it's, a, it's like a memorized rhyme that can be used over and over again. And you can see a ton of examples of this as we read through uh, sec, uh, chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So the, the idea expressed in both of those statements is God has power to do his work. And again, you see that hand means power. His hand is not shortened. His ear is not heavy. Thine iniquities, verse 2, your iniquities have, sep- have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So the idea of verse 1 is God has plenty of power to do his work. The idea of verse 2 is it's your choice that has separated you. But each of those things is expressed twice. I'm not going to go through all of these, but that's every verse in this whole chapter. So if you want to learn about parallelism, this is the chapter to do it. It's fascinating. We will skip to chapter uh, section or verse 17. Chapter section and verse. <laughs> we'll skip to verse 17. Now, you'll remember in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, Paul talks about the put on the whole armor of God. This is where he got the idea. He says, as it is written, put on the whole armor of God. Well, this is where it is written. And you, so you'll remember some of this imagery here. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And Paul expanded upon this metaphor and gave each part of the armor a meaning. But a lot of those meanings came from Isaiah. So Paul was an observant Jew. We'll talk a little bit about um, Jesus Christ also quoting from Isaiah. But observant Jews were very familiar with Isaiah. And that's why... I believe that these these shepherds that were in the fields, when the angels appeared and said, I bring you good tidings of great joy, Christ is born, they would have heard echoes in their mind of Isaiah saying, good tidings. Oh, that's the people who say unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Because observant Jews, Isaiah was very paramount to them. Here's another idea that found that found later expression in scripture, the following verse in verse 18, according to their deeds, this is, this is actually the whole point of this chapter, summed up right here in verse 18. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Now, the rising of the sun is another way of saying east. This is one of those memorized rhymes. Sometimes you'll see east. Sometimes you'll see rising of the sun. Sometimes you'll see them repeated one after another. So what they want to do is express the same idea using different words. And that helps the hearers when you're speaking orally, when you're teaching uh, a message to an illiterate people. You use this kind of repetition to fix it in their minds. And in fact, when you and I, uh, when we we go see a movie or whatever, we, we like it when the loose ends are tied up 
because we like it when people come back to ideas that are already expressed and we like it we like stories that the where the end they end up in some ways back where they began you know it's sort of like the 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 plot comes full circle that's a very satisfying rhetorical device and it and it works not only in scripture but it works in narrative and you know you your favorite books and your favorite films all have this idea where the loose ends are tied up and things end up where they began in some way but with a change and the change happens in the middle of this chiasmus so that's why Isaiah is such a powerful teacher but this idea right here is the idea of restoration that was given very eloquent expression by Alma in Alma chapter 41 you remember he's talking to his son and he says, you know, Corianton, you cannot, you cannot think that because you're going to be restored, that you're going to be restored from wickedness to happiness. Let me show you how this works. Whatever you do, that's what's restored to you. The choices you make have their consequences. And I cannot help but believe that Alma first came across this idea by reading the scriptures. And here it is right in Isaiah 59, the idea of restoration. And he and he expanded upon that, prayed about it, received revelation on it, and we have uh, even more eloquent teaching of it in Alma 41. But this is, I believe, where he would have been exposed to it for the first time. So here we are in chapters 60 through 62. And just briefly in, in verse 1, you can see echoes of this good news. Now, we don't have the phrase good tidings here, but, but let's read the verse. Arise and shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, Charles Jennings, the, the man who assembled the words to Handel's Messiah, he actually put this verse together with one of the verses in Isaiah that talks about the good news. So it's, it's very obviously part of what this good messenger would say. Arise and shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. This is, the, this is what this good messenger would say. Here I am, I'm, I'm announcing the thy God reigneth. Arise and shine, thy light is come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So this chapter deals with the idea that you're living in darkness. And so once again, we've jumped forward in time to a nation in exile. You're living in darkness, but here is the good news. You're going you're gonna to be gathered in. We, we, start, we start learning about this idea of the new Jerusalem, how wonderful it's going to be. People are going to come from all over and, and you're going to discover that they're your descendants. And this is your, you are the eunuchs and you've all been cut off and yet I have a place and a name for you. Here's your, your light has come, the glory is on its way. So verse one is a statement by the good messenger, even though it doesn't explicitly say it. And then the rest of the chapter talks about uh, how all these other nations, they're not only going to be, not only are you not going to be in exile anymore, but the people who are subjecting you will one day be subject to you. And it'll be done voluntarily. Your glory will be above all the other nations of the earth. Now imagine how comforting this chapter would be to a people who are scattered and exiled. When they talk about gathering, the thing that they've lost, the, the thing that they regret the most is their unity and the fact that they, can, they could worship God and they had a, an identity. They had this place and a name and now it's gone. And God is saying, I'm going to give it back and I'm going to give it back with increase. So a very comforting chapter continued in chapter 61. Now here's the final mention of this good news. Verse 1 again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Isaiah talking. However, we'll, we'll discuss who else might be talking in a minute. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me 
to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. As you read this, hopefully, maybe not, but hopefully you will you will feel like it's very familiar. And in fact, it is a very familiar verse because Jesus Christ begins his ministry. And he first thing he does is he's baptized. He goes and fasts for 40 days in the desert. But then very early on, he's famous for working miracles and healing people. And so he returns to his home town of Nazareth and he's in the synagogue there and he's a rabbi. He's known as a rabbi. He's a visiting rabbi. And so he's given the honor of reading the weekly the, the weekly reading from the, the books of the prophets. And it just so happened that this week, the reading, the designated reading, this, this is what we believe about um, the customs of Jesus Christ or the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ, which was that they were they would have been following a prescribed order of reading these scriptures. And it just so happened that on this day, uh, it was this chapter of the book of Isaiah. So Jesus gets up to read this verse. And this is the verse that he read when he visited the synagogue of, uh, of Nazareth. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Now we talked about how good tidings is not a word on its own. The messenger of good tidings is all one word in Hebrew. Well, in this verse, it's not exactly, there is no messenger. So what the word is, is preach good tidings. But this, it's the same idea that the good tidings don't exist apart from either the messenger or the preaching. And so Christ is saying, I am, I am the one who has been called to bring these good tidings to you. Because when, when he finishes reading the verse, he says, this day is this verse is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? That was his message to his hometown. Now they didn't accept it. They said, "Wait, what are you talking about? The, uh, you know, the, what do you think? You're some sort of great man. We we saw you grow up." And Jesus says, "Well, there were people who there were people who lived. Oh, and then they continued by saying, if 'If you're such a great prophet, do one of your miracles right now. You know, we've heard about all your miracles. Why don't you do one so we can see?'" And Jesus said, there were all kinds of people throughout Israel for all the miracles of the prophets. I mean, look at, look at Elijah. There were all kinds of people living under the drought that he brought, but only the widow that he lived with saw his miracles. And that's when they tried to kill him because he was implying that you are not worthy to see the miracles. But they had proven themselves not worthy by saying, oh, yeah, we don't believe you. Show us a miracle. So they had first rejected him as a prophet, asked him to prove himself, and then he said, well, you've, you've rejected me as a prophet. You're not worthy to see these miracles. And not everyone gets to see what they think they want, but those who are faithful first get to see, what, you know, get to see the miracles of God and salvation of God. The reason I'm spending so much time on this verse is that the, the Jews at the time of Christ considered the canon and, and by that, I mean the C-A-N-O-N, the, the collected works of scripture. They considered the canon closed. And it's so interesting that Christians, mainstream Christianity today, would agree with that statement. They would say, yes, the Jews thought the canon was closed, but it wasn't because here's Christ. And he's obviously one of the, he's greater than any of the prophets of the Old Testament. He's telling them that God is continuing to speak to his people. And in fact, this is a verse about prophecy. The, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me could be spoken by anyone who's a prophet. So it was, the fulfillment was Isaiah when it was originally written. 
And yet Christ said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so another fulfillment is from the life of Christ, the third antecedent, as we discussed. So we have a surface. The first antecedent is Isaiah. The third antecedent is Christ. They both apply in this verse. And they're all about, the verse is all about prophets. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Who did Christ go to? This is, this is a very explicit testimony that the Messiah might not be this glorious king who reigns with a military might. But what did Christ do in the Sermon on the Mount? He showed up and said, blessed are the meek. In fact, all of the Beatitudes had to do with people who were the, similar to these eunuchs and strangers. They were people who were second-class citizens, according to the Jews. They were people who had received their poor in spirit. They'd received some sort of injury. Uh, they'd been peacemakers because they'd, they'd watched other people fighting. Christ did not go, and he, and he said, you know, visit the poor, visit the hungry. If you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. This was Christ's message, and it was very revolutionary, and yet it has its foundation here in this verse in Isaiah. And, and Christ says, this day is this fulfilled. I'm this kind of Messiah. He was testifying not only as his identity as a prophet and Messiah, but what kind of Messiah he was. He was saying, you've been looking for a military Messiah, but here I am. I'm going to do miracles among the poor, and I'm going to raise up the sick, and I'm going to visit people that you're disgusted by. I'm going to visit people who collect taxes for the Romans and women who sell their bodies for sex. I'm going to preach to sinners people that you don't even want to touch because you'll be made ritually impure and unclean, but my holiness will spread to all of them. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is. And here is a root of it. Here's how they could have known it. If they'd understood this scripture, then the Jews could have been sensitive to it, and they could have accepted Christ, and many did. So Christ is saying, I'm the good messenger. I'm the gospel. I'm the one who's been sent to preach good tidings. So this is a, a powerful testimony. And again, he uses the word anointed. The Lord hath anointed me. Now this did happen with prophets and with kings anciently, but the word for anointed is Mashiach or Messiah. It was Jesus saying, I am the Christ. This is the kind of Messiah I am. This is the kind of prophet I am. And I'm here. This day is this, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 30. That's worth a read as well. The further lesson that we can get from this verse and this episode with Christ is that mainstream Christianity now considers, after Christ, they consider the canon to be closed. Yes, the Jews thought erroneously the canon was closed, and then Christ shows up and says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, uh, Joseph Smith never explicitly mentioned, or I, that I know of, he never mentioned um, Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 as applying to himself. But he had the same message, which is, God has ordained me, he's, he's, he's anointed me, chosen me, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring the gospel to the people. And I, I, I am the messenger. And what did Christians do? They said the same thing the Jews said to Christ, which is, the canon is closed. What are you talking about? If you're such a prophet, then do a miracle. Uh, so... It's very interesting that I think any Christian in the world would agree the Jews were wrong. The canon was not closed. Christ, just because there had been prophets in the past, didn't mean Christ couldn't come along and, and 
explain more about God's word and represent God the way prophets did. And yet, then that time ended. So here's the point for you and me. The most difficult prophet to listen to is not the one in the scriptures. The most difficult prophet to listen to is the one that's talking to you now today and telling you something you don't want to hear. So, you know, Joseph Smith saying, we've got to we've got to move from Kirtland to Nauvoo, or, you know, you have to, you have to accept the Book of Mormon. You have to accept that God wants you to give up all of your sins and not just the ones that you've learned that are the worst. And Brigham Young saying, hey, I know we've just finished building the temple, but now we've got to move across the plains. We've got to move again. And it's happened numerous times throughout the years, throughout the history of the modern church, throughout the history of the ancient church. The, the prophets in the past were always easier to listen to. Jesus Christ is easier to listen to from the scriptures than he is today. That's just the way it is because it's easy to see the mistakes of other people. And it's easy to say, well, if I were in ancient Israel, I wouldn't be an idolater because idolatry is stupid. But we live today and we have a prophet telling us today, here are the things you need to work on. Please read the Book of Mormon. And we say, well, you know, I've got other things that are more important to do with my time right now, but I'll get to it. And it's harder to listen to our modern prophet. It's just the way it is. And it's more important. And that's just the way it is. Chapter 61 has another message that's really interesting. And if you remember the special episode we did with Mike Madsen, where he talked about the, he made mention of a verse in 2 Nephi, 2 Nephi 4.33, where Nephi is calling unto God to cover him with the robe of his righteousness. And he said, this is an ancient Near Eastern uh, custom where if a if a sheikh wanted to extend his protection to someone then he put his robe upon him and then if if that person were being pursued across the desert then they could see that this the robe had been put on them meaning the sheikh had adopted them into the tribe or into the, into his camp and he'd put him under his protection then they thought well if we if we attack the person who now has the robe on the person we've been pursuing then we're attacking the sheikh it, it was a way of uh, extending one's identity to someone else. And that idea that is that we find in Nephi, in 2 Nephi, is here in, ch- in verse uh, chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. So uh, the, the robe of God is the way that he extends his protection to us. And it's also found, this is a, this is a metaphor that's continued uh, in a in symbolism that is continued in the Book of Mormon and in, the, in, in temple worship as well. He says he's clothing the, the garments of his righteousness. And um, so on to chapter 62, God is saying, there's going to be so many, not only am I going to restore you, Israel, to your lands, but there's going to be so many of you, you've got to run out and build roads because people are going to be coming in with, in such volume that you're not even going to be prepared for them. And uh, this is when God says, he talks about the new name. We can skip to verse 4. He says, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. And another translation of desolate is to say the deserted wife. And so the word desolate here is actually a continuation of this adultery theme. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which means God is pleased with her. 
and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And Beulah is happily married. So he's saying the, this, this period of adultery is going to be over, and there will be forgiveness and reconciliation. And the, the idea of a new name carrying meaning for you. So again, the, the entire people of Israel is being given a new name. And that theme continues throughout the chapter. You can look and see how people and peoples are renamed. And that is a, that is a theme that goes through Isaiah. There, um, there are a lot of ideas that find their culmination in the temple here in the final chapters of Isaiah, both ancient and modern temple. Now, that, so 60, 61, 62, those are the culmination of this great final chiasmus of Isaiah, the, the, the good news and the grand visions of the new Jerusalem. I encourage you to read them. So then final, then as we now are sort of on the descending arc of the book of Isaiah, 63 through 66. And this is in verse in chapter 63 is where we get the image of God trotting the wine press alone. And it might surprise you to hear that he wasn't talking about suffering for the sins of people. He was it's a it's a metaphor of he shows up in red clothing and he's been uh, out taking vengeance on his enemies alone and the and he looks like he's been trotting in a wine press but he's wading in blood because he's been taking his vengeance on all the sinners now it's an interesting double meaning because um christ has been spoken of by prophets both ancient and modern as having trodden the wine press alone because his his raiment was also red with blood and so when god talks about uh, taking vengeance on the sinners here in Isaiah. Now we know, we Christians know, it wasn't through violence that he was going to do it. This is, this, this is the dichotomy, this is the paradox of Jesus's mission to earth, was that God was not, that the blood was never going to be the, the sinner's blood. The blood was always going to be the servant's blood. And so he, he returns from this taking vengeance, having blood on his raiment. And the assumption is he's done it through violence. And the truth is quite different. The truth is that he's done it through his own atonement. It's his own blood. So knowing that gives a new context to Isaiah chapter 63. But this this chapter is um, a description of Yahweh, the victorious warrior. And God is saying, I believe you... I believed in you. I led you to safety in the past, and I led you with in the in the Exodus. I led you away from Egypt. So believe in me again. And the from the middle of this chapter, the end of it is a one big long prayer for forgiveness and peace. It's Isaiah praying for his people. Sometimes you hear in general conference, you hear the prophet or the apostle. I've I've had this happen on a couple of occasions in general conference. I've seen it. But also when an apostle visits and then he says, I give you an apostolic blessing to the people that are in attendance. And it's basically him putting his hands on everyone's head there and saying, I'm, I'm blessing you by the priesthood with whatever blessings, whatever words follow. This is the same thing from Isaiah. He's, he's praying for his people and he's giving them an apostolic blessing saying, God, give us the peace that you've promised. That's chapter 63. And in 64, it's just a continuation of that same prayer. Redeem us from exile. Don't be angry forever. Um, 
there's a, another oft-quoted scripture. Paul took um, verse 4 of chapter 64, where Isaiah says, I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man those things that God has prepared for those that love him. Well, that's quoted by Paul in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So then chapter 65, God is saying, you've been praying to me. I would, have been, I would have been answering your prayers, but the prayers that you've been giving to me have been either selfish or hypocritical prayers. I, I can only answer prayers by those people that are doing my will. Otherwise, I would be changeable God, and that's not the kind of God that I am. I would have been happy. In other words, I've been happy to be answering your prayers this whole time. Here's an interesting statement on translation in verse 11 of chapter 65. But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop. Now the word troop is actually the word gad, and it's the word for fortune or luck. And then, uh, so he's saying, God is saying, you're preparing a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. The word for number is many, you may remember, and that's M-E-N-E or M-E-N-I. You may remember that the words written on the wall that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees the night that he is conquered, and Daniel interprets them as you've been weighed and measured, are many, many. So M-E-N-E, M-E-N-E, you've been weighed and you've been measured. So it's a, it's a word for numbered, but it's also the name of the god of fate or destiny. Other translations have this as uh, you've prepared a table for the god Gad, and you've pre- you've prepared a drink offering for the god Many, and the way the King James version renders it is, you've prepared a table for that troop and furnished a drink offering unto that number. They both work, and in fact, they're both intentional. So neither captures the whole meaning. What he's saying is, you are still going after other gods, even though you're praying to me. But as we, as we discussed earlier, chapter 65 talks about how much peace will, there will be in the holy mountain. In other words, all of New Jerusalem will be like a temple. None will hurt or do injury in all of my holy mountain. My whole city will be like a temple. And finally, in chapter 66, we kind of come back to where we began in chapter 56. And God says explicitly, I'm going to have a new heaven and a new earth. You all want to do something great for me, like all you Israelites who are suffering. You're in, you're either in exile or you are afraid of exile, and you all want to build me a temple, or you all want to do something, some great work for the Lord. But I'm the one who created all the materials that you would use to do it. You can't do anything for me. The only thing you can do is listen to my word. For heaven's sake, stop trying to find some great thing to do. Just like Naaman and the prophet Elisha, where he said, go bathe in the Jordan. And he said, well, you know, is that it? No, I'm not going to do that. And his servant said, would, if he asked you to do some great thing, you would do it. So why not bathe in the River Jordan? And God is saying, bathe in the River Jordan rather than try to build me a temple or do some new great work every day. Just do the simple things I've asked you to do. And then he makes again a promise that these people that are being gathered, of the, he's saying to all the Israelites, you'll have new children. You, you thought you're children have all been taken away. You thought you're, you have no place and no name. You thought that all your descendants have been killed, and so then you can never have any more. But I will make for you descendants out of all the peoples of the earth. They'll come unto you. And one of the, 
one of the distinctive features of the Jews was that they were the only ones allowed in the temple, and especially the Levites, the descendants of Levi, of Aaron, were the only ones allowed to be priests in the temple. And here God is saying, not only will these strangers come in and be Israelites, they'll be your children among you, but they will also, I will take from their number and have them be priests in the temple. So in other words, the the strangers, the, the whole world is going to own this temple. This temple is going to belong to everyone. The, the promise of the Jews as a light to the Gentiles is that one day there will be no Gentiles. And that's the amazing ending of this message. So begins and ends with the same thing. All these strangers and eunuchs will be brought in and made part. And everyone who thinks that they're outcast, everyone who thinks that they're less than, everyone who thinks that they're a second class citizen, these are the people that Christ is called to. And that that message find it, finds its culmination in chapters 60, 61, and 62, where God says, I'm called to break every bond, to proclaim liberty to the captive. And this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So Christ was a prophet. He reopened the canon. The canon is never closed. This message of liberty to the captive never ends. And the most important prophet to listen to is the prophet of our day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you.